Monkey 238 Online. This is the State of Games, Episode 6. Initiating load sequence in 3, 2, 1. Prepare for podcast. Alright, welcome to the State of Games. I'm Dice Hate Me. And this is Monkey 238. And this is Episode 6, or as we like to call it, the one about Alf. Sigurd, that is. You know, the board game designer. And if you're wondering what that's all about, some of you might remember that we talked about Alf and his newest release, Trollhalla, in Episode 4, where we talked about the Seven Deadly Sins. Well, Alf has a new game that we also teased in that episode. It's on the brink of being published. And fittingly enough, it's about the Seven Deadly Sins. Anyway, that game is The Road to Canterbury, and he needs our help in getting it into the hands of eager gamers everywhere. We'll be talking to Alf here in just a bit, but first I wanted to talk to Monkey about a little something. Did you know that by my calculations, you've learned and played 33 new games this year? Whoa. <laughs> That's only three games away from being the total amount of games you learned last year. That's pretty crazy. Yeah, all of last year. So um, if you keep going, you're probably going to have to start a blog of your own. Yeah, maybe. I'll, I'll leave that writing to you. You're a, but you're a good writer. Yeah, but that's your thing. That's my thing. What's your <laughs> thing? Being cute and winning games? Yeah. Yeah? yeah. Okay, all right. So, uh, out of all those, I guess, 33 that you've played this year, what what have been some of your favorites? Hmm. i say if I'd have to narrow it down to five in no particular order, I'd say At the Gates of Luoyang. Naturally. Which I think we've talked about recently yeah. in one mm-hmm. of our podcasts. Um, through the Ages, which we're going to talk about later, so you'll hear more about that. Um, Lords of Vegas, which Chris just wrote a review about. That's and super we talked fun. about that last week. Yes. Um, Trollhalla, which is Alf's game, the first Alf game that we played. Yep. And 1960, which is the making of the president, um, JFK against Nixon. Of course, I played Mr. Kennedy himself. <laughs> yeah. He's that's a little just Democrat. Fitting. Yeah, totally fitting. That one's a, probably, I guess, the nerdiest one on the list, wouldn't you think? Yeah, it's comparable to Twilight Struggle, yeah. which we haven't played in a long time, so 1960 was a nice fix of yeah. that sort of game. It's a little less um, intense than Twilight Struggle, and you can finish it in a much quicker time period. Yeah. And neither one of you are eliminated in round two like you could be in Twilight yeah. Struggle. But that those are probably my top five favorites so far. But we still have... How many more months? Eight more months? Eight more Seven months. Seven eight more months. Yes, and hopefully lots of more review copies from companies. Hint, hint. <coughs> nudge, nudge. <clears throat> we don't want to, you know, say anything like that, but yeah. So what else What else are we looking forward to playing? Oh, Fresco. Yeah. yeah, that's on the dining room table taunting us right now as we finish up our work, and hopefully we'll fit in a game tonight and be able to talk about it on our next podcast. Provided we like it. Which I think we will. Yeah, it looks We've read through cool. the instructions already and set the game up, and it's ready to go. Yeah, Monkey's already in love with her little bitty apprentice meeples. Yeah, they're cute. Yeah. So we have a very special guest on the podcast this week, Alf Siegert. Some of you may know Alf as the designer of Bridge Troll and Trollhalla. And as a matter of fact, you can read a review of Trollhalla and an interview with Alf on DiceHateMe.com, just as a little plug. Alf has something new a-brewing, and something very buzzworthy. So we teased to it a bit in episode 4, but here to talk more about that project, The Road to Canterbury, is the man himself. Welcome to the show, Alf. Hey, thank you so much. 
Hey, Alf. Um, I haven't been as involved as Chris with all of this, so can you tell me and other listeners what The Road to Canterbury is all about? Ah, well, um, thanks, Monkey. Uh, the Road to Canterbury, its uh, I guess it's a little bit like a weird Chaucerian fever dream of strangeness. Um, it's a game where it's based on the Canterbury Tales, um, which you probably know is uh, a Geoffrey Chaucer's collection of body, naughty, and incredibly enjoyable stories from the late 14th century, um, which is about a bunch of pilgrims who are traveling on pilgrimage from the Tabard Inn outside of London to the Shrine of Thomas of Becket at Canterbury. And... Um, what I discovered in reading that, um, I'm, I, I love literature, and there was a particular character who I really enjoyed in that who is the pardoner, and the pardoner is um, a quasi-religious figure um, who is pretty much now associated with corruption, and in the game you get to play this corrupt pardoner, so this is another game where you get to play the bad guy, I seem to enjoy this sort of thing. So uh, <laughs> what you do in the game is um, you, you travel on the road um, with all the pilgrims to Canterbury, and the way you make your money is you end up selling certificates that end up forgiving the pilgrims of particular sins. And so you sell what are called indulgences. And to keep yourself in business, however, you need to make sure that the pilgrims commit the sins that they then need to come to you for forgiveness for. And, uh, and so the, the purpose of the game is to make as much money as possible by being sort of a cackle-worthy Edmund Blackadder of a pardoner. And um, that's how you make your money and what you do in the game. It sounds awesome. I, well, I know a lot about it because we've been kind of involved together with it. As far as the theme of the game, we're, we're kind of a long way from trolls here. So uh, how was that transition? I know that um, we talked a bit about in the interview that Trollhalla originally came from a game themed around elephants and stacks of food. Right. Um, that was Timbo. And so just to briefly, you have a designer diary now on Board Game Geek. But for all of us, what was the evolution of the Road to Canterbury like? Oh, yeah. I guess what I've discovered of late as a designer is that whatever your original theme is, don't expect it to last. Um, because um, Bridge Troll was the first game I published, and it changed very little from the original prototype except for a little bit um, in terms of the mechanics, but the theme didn't change at all. But with both Trollhalla and Road to Canterbury, it changed a bit. It changed a lot more, I think, with Trollhalla than Road to Canterbury, but here's how it works with Road to Canterbury. I, was, uh, I get fascinated by these sort of um, historical or theological dilemmas, the kind of things that would keep Thomas Aquinas and other scholastics um, up at night from you know a millennium ago. And... Um, <laughs> And, uh, and I guess I take these theological questions seriously, not so much from a religious perspective, but just because I find them fascinating from a philosophical perspective or whatnot. And I remember at one point, I can't remember if it was just simply something like watching the History Channel or if I was just reading about the sort of stuff I would end up teaching later. But um, Constantine, who was the Roman emperor in the early 4th century, who de- had the, he declared the Edict of Milan. And that was what ended up making Christianity finally tolerated in the Roman Empire. It went from being persecuted to tolerated to being the official mandatory state religion in about a century. It's one of the most astonishing turnarounds in the the whole history of politics and religion in world history. But with Constantine himself, he was supposedly a Christian, but his view of baptism was that because baptism only ended up forgiving you of the sins that you've already committed, you should put it off as long as possible. Um, get, get in as much as you can before you do it. Now, I'm being unfair and parodic here, of course, because, I mean, you know, what would Chaucer do? What would Monty Python do? What would Edmund Blackadder do, right? right. Um, and, uh, and so with Constantine, he waited as long as possible to perform a baptism. I don't think in his case to perform as many insidious and strange acts of you know, debauchery before then. But he did get baptized right before he died. And I was thinking, wow, that would be kind of a cool game mechanic 
um, as a mechanism, if you think about the idea of, wait a second, if I'm an early Christian, but maybe I'm not sincere, but I want to get in good with both the church and with God, why don't I see how much I can squeeze in before I die? So I've got to make sure I get baptized at the last possible <laughs> moment, but not die first. So it would, be a, it would be a classic push your luck sort of game where your life would be on the line. So that, that's the, the origin story of the first thing that made me think of what ended up becoming the, uh, the road to Canterbury. Um, as a game design, though, it didn't end up coming about, because if you yourself are the character who's trying to live as long as possible, doing awful things before you get baptized, well, what happens when you die? Are you eliminated from the game? You know, I don't like player elimination games very much, unless they're very short, you know, like Werewolf or something like that, right? Right, right. Um, and then I, I changed it to a game which would be like maybe, okay, we're going to control a particular family in 4th century Italy, and you know, we'll have multiple characters from that family. But then you've got to figure out how you're going to kill them off, right? Um, <laughs> and so we have basically, what, 13 dead-end drives set in 4th century Italy. Um, and I didn't <laughs> want to do that. So eventually I abandoned that, and then ultimately, I think it was through studying Chaucer again that I was like, wait a second, there's another Pusherelica mechanic you could think about with the seven deadly sins and pilgrims on the road to Canterbury, and why not make a game where instead of being those who are committing the sins, make it the one who is selling forgiveness and then tempting the others to sin, and your goal is just to make as much money as possible. So I sort of switched things around a bit, and that's uh, what became this new game. It's also a little less morbid, too, when you're not having to worry I about die. Yeah, I mean, it is a little bit less morbid. I mean, there is this strange irony here because the game, the only thing that people have brought up so far with any possible objections or concerns, actually the reverse objections so far, um, is the use of language in the game for the seven deadly sins and people are worried about the word lust. And I think it's funny because people are saying, well, if it's a family-friendly game, I guess you couldn't use lust. And I'm just laughing because this is a game where the purpose is to end up causing all sorts of insidious sin to be committed by others that are deadly sins that can ultimately lead to their deaths, right? <laughs> so we're, in, we're indirectly murdering these pilgrims, um, <laughs> causing them to sin. Your goal is the utmost of corruption and deception, but no one minds that, right? But as soon right. as we talk about lust, then we have a problem. Yeah, yeah, that was funny because that was one of the questions that I'd had on here asking you about replacing lust with luxury. And so you, when you bring that up, it's interesting to see people's feedback and their reactions to certain games. When you were getting feedback about the game itself outside of, of gamers now, how they're reacting to the theme of it, um, mm -hmm. this is supposed to be quote-unquote a family game, and now you've mentioned that now we've got you know sin and corruption and death. I mean, were you met with any opposition when you were getting feedback? I think that's a really good question. Um, I, I think it's... I, I don't ever think much about my audience, at least early on. I just think about what weird theme comes to me and how can it become a game, right? I mean, Bridge Troll itself, I mean, the reason why it can end up passing as a family game is because you're a troll, right? Um, even though your main dilemma is do you eat or extort the, uh, the traveler who's trying to cross <laughs> your bridge, right? So, you, you know, you are devouring humans or extorting them, and that is your basic dilemma. But it is a, it's a lovely family game. Please pick it up from Z-Man Games. Um, <laughs> But uh, what, what with this game, the seven deadly sins are the basis. And um, if you have a chance, um, I'd recommend anyone who's listening to try to get online and get a look at Hieronymus Bosch and his um, tabletop image. It's called The Seven Deadly Sins and the Four Last Things. It's this gorgeous image, and it's an actual tabletop that Hieronymus Bosch, who is the famed painter of um, The Garden of Earthly Delights, that insane Dr. Seuss on acid triptych of utter strangeness. Yeah. Um, the, the seven deadly sins uh, are um, depicted on there along with the four last things. Namely, if I remember all these, you have death, you have the judgment, um, and then you have the resurrection and things like that as well. Um, but the seven deadly sins are listed in Latin. 
And the Latin term that ends up translated in the seven deadly sins that we know now as lust was luxuria. And the term luxuria um, in the Latin, the way that was used included sexual excess, gluttony of sexual desire, lustfulness, but it wasn't exclusively that. Like if you look at the image of luxuria as depicted by Hieronymus Bosch, it isn't just about lust. It's about extravagance, excess, desire. And so I think that the term luxury um, still contains within it the word lechery, but it also contains that sense of sort of wantonness, excess. Um, and I couldn't think of a single word that covered all that. And the word lust, I did consider using it again. The publisher thought it best not to, and I, I totally agree with that. But I think luxury works just fine. If um, Tom McDonald suggested that I use the term wantonness, and I think that that probably is the best word, actually, because doesn't it just sound fun saying it? Just say it with me. Wantonness, right? You know? <laughs> Wantonness. Wantonness. Yeah. You know, it just, it sounds like, you know, it just, it has that sense of, of languid desire in it, right? Oh, yeah. Um, but, but it's a whole lot of letters to shove onto a card, you know? And uh, <laughs> with, with luxury already done, I think we're going to just stick with it. No, I think I didn't even notice when, you know, when I was taking a look at the boards and the adjustments to Hieronymus Bosch's uh, artwork and things like that, I didn't really even notice that lust had been replaced by luxury. It just kind of fit to me. But I know a lot of people have been talking a bit about that purity, all this. And it's so it's cool to hear the language and the evolution of language that you guys put into the game itself. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, and lately we're seeing kind of this cool, well, at least in my opinion, cool trend in some board games towards making um, either artistic, political, social, or religious statements. And you kind of touched upon how the evolution of the designing of the game, you know, comes from historical information. But was any of this part of your intent? Yeah, well, geez, it, it's it's hard to say. I mean, I I am pleased that there are games out there that are addressing things that are you know, close to my heart, like ecological concerns, for instance. But I find that just things grab me whether or not they have any seemingly inherent um, value for making the world a better place. But I, I, I'm, a, I'm a rabid Marshall McLuhanite. Um, if you know Marshall McLuhan, um, he's famed for the phrase, the medium is the message. And also for the medium is the massage was actually what he named his book. And the way, um, what he emphasized is that people get caught up on the content of media all the time. And so, like, you know, we go back to these constant debates over was the game Doom responsible, the video game Doom responsible for what happened at Columbine, right? Um, Grand Theft Auto, what happens because of the influence of these games? Marshall McLuhan, he died, I think, in the early 80s. But he was really big on pointing out that it isn't the content of media that is nearly as important as the form of the medium itself. And so he said it isn't the content on TV that's the problem. It's the fact that television restructures your awareness in a way that didn't exist 100 years ago. And so you get used to really, really quick cuts. You end up getting used to having information done in bite-sized pieces, right? And so it sort of changes our mode of awareness. And Neil Postman took up all this stuff. So this is all a long way around to saying that I absolutely agree with you. I think board games themselves are a medium that have a huge political statement and a huge social statement. Because what does playing a board game say? It says, hi, I want to get around a table with a bunch of my friends. And for me, the board game is just an occasion to have a joyful time with those you love and enjoy spending time with, right? 
Yes, and there absolutely. you are, there you are, face to face, interacting, um, raising up the hackles of others in playful ways, ritualizing competition, and just enjoying that time. And the fact that you're doing that in a physical space that you're sharing, it's not conspicuous consumption. I mean, you learn so much more about a person playing for two hours a game than watching a movie, you know? Um, I mean, I love film, don't get me wrong, but there's something about that interaction. So I think that it's the medium of board games that is itself revolutionary as much as anything that happens in a particular game. Yeah, I would agree with that as well. And we love the interaction of board games, and of course that's why we're in the hobby and, and love playing it. I like how your games foster that, that kind of interaction and, and talking to each other and, and just having a good time and, and playing and learning about people. I think that's fascinating. One thing that you touched on that's going to be kind of outside the realm of this is that you talked about the the media now becoming so uh, quick cuts and quick snippets and things like that. That must be maddening to you as a professor of literature. <laughs> yeah, it's really easy. I mean, I, I'm wondering when I'm going to end up assigning a paper um, where instead of being four pages, it will end up being, oh, please turn it in in 140 characters or less. <laughs> <laughs> that might actually be um, an interesting challenge. Yeah, um, it is challenging. I'm I'm very pained, actually. I mean, when I teach, I notice students. Um, I mean, I, I try to be an entertaining professor, and I think that I am. But I've noticed over the last five years, students checking the clock much much more regularly. And I'm presuming it's because we're, according to like McLuhan here, right? We're rewired now to expect new information every. 35 seconds, right? Like a Twitter update or something else. We, we're always checking our email compulsively, which I do, you know. But I think our, our awareness is being restructured away from having any dedicated, deep, continual engagement. And instead, it's all fractured. It's like cubist perception, you know. Mm -hmm. And it isn't, I think, because we're stupider, but it's a diffuse mode of awareness that I think is, in a lot of ways, stuff that wouldn't get its toe wet in the shallows. I, I mean, I would agree with all that, and it's it's just a. We were just speaking the other day about the the rewiring of things, and that's one of the reasons why it's awesome to be able to unplug, so to speak, and participate in an analog environment such as board gaming. And that's why I think it's so important that people get that experience, and and of course why we're passionate about what we play and what we do. Yeah, I entirely agree, and yeah, I I wish I I made more time for board games because I I find myself you know relaxing in ways I don't otherwise. Yeah, it's it's really great. So, uh, well, that was a, an interesting and deep departure. <laughs> Let's we'll, we'll kind of steer the boat back into the direction of what we were talking about. Let's uh, bring up Monty Python for a minute. Um, oh, please do. Yes, naturally, I can assume you're a fan of Monty Python from the portions of the game where you have named the holy relics oh yeah yeah and in, and in the game for people who don't know the holy relics are a, a certain thing you can take uh to add um special abilities during the game um there are some that are like for instance the the collar of saint bernard uh my personal favorite is the scrambled eggs of saint benedict what basically we want to know what is your favorite relic <laughs> you know i i really like a whole bunch of these um I'm a big fan of the Knickers of St. Nicholas. Um, the Knickers of St. Nicholas. Um, the way the game works is that you end up tempting these pilgrims to commit different sins, and each sin you tempt them with brings death one step closer, and as soon as they commit seven sins, um, the pilgrim dies. Um, and sometimes when you have the advantage on a particular pilgrim because you have had the most corrupting influence and then you get credit for that, you want the pilgrim to die sooner. So what you'll do is you'll use the relic, the Knickers of St. Nicholas, and um, the way it works is it brings death closer. And the note is some, some gifts are best left unopened. <laughs> that would be one. My, my absolute favorite is the miraculous mustache of St. Wilgefortis. <laughs> 
Um, and St. Wilgefortis was actually a young woman who pledged herself to God and resisted the advances of a suitor by praying for deliverance. So allegedly God granted her wish by making her sprout a mustache and a beard, making her hideously unmarriageable. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, basically, let's talk about overall, how'd you get hooked up with Griffin Games? Yeah, well, I was um, working on this particular game, and uh, I'm part of the Board Game Designers Guild of Utah, which is a really, you know, as far as I understand, highly unique and um, rare occasion. I just am graced to live here in Salt Lake City with so many other really good designers. Um, about four years ago, a guy named Greg Jones, who was at that time the manager of the wonderful local game store Game Night Games, um, he's a designer, and he knew that I was a designer, knew a couple other people, and he's like, hey, why don't we team up and play each other's prototypes and set up some kind of club where we can play each other's games? So we did that, and soon we had dozens of people who started doing this sort of thing. And Greg had connections with the company Fred Distribution, and um, Fred Distribution started a few years ago and um, started making some really great games like um, Ink and Gold would be one of them. For Sale is another one that um, is really popular, Roll Through the Ages, for instance. And um, he had connections with Fred and said, hey, why don't you take a look at some of our games? We have a whole bunch of really good designers here. And so he worked it up, um, and I'm really grateful for, um, to Greg for doing this, coordinating for all of us to send a game to Fred Games. And Fred looked through them all and said, hey, these are really cool, and they decided that two of them they wanted to publish. One of them is the game Pastiche by um, Sean McDonald, and that's doing very well. Beautiful game about uh, creating works of art by mixing dabs of paint. It's doing really well. Um, and the other one was my game, um, which uh, I think at the time was called No Rest for the Wicked. Um, and, uh, and that was my Canterbury game. And uh, since then, it's changed just a little wee bit and the title and stuff like that. And they uh, have been really supportive in giving it the best possible art and treatment it could get. Yeah, it seems like they've really done a good job, and especially sticking behind you and backing everything that, that you have. Um, just in the communications that you and I have had in, in talking about putting together the Kickstarter campaign, which I'm going to plug right now. Um, oh, thank you. <clears throat> sure. Uh, Griffin Games has started a Kickstarter campaign for The Road to Canterbury to raise money for its printing. Uh, if any listeners out there would like to help out, and believe me, you really should, you can go to kck.st backslash help alf. <laughs> and I'll, in, <laughs> uh, I'll include that link with this podcast on DiceHateMe.com. And there are some really cool rewards for backers on there. And Alpha, if you want to mention a couple of those. Yeah, I, I didn't know how this was all going to work. And when I found out this was going to be a Kickstarter campaign, I was really interested to see what Griffin wanted to do. Um, I guess the, the, the big issue here is that this is a game that Griffin really liked, but they also just had no idea what the demand would be. You know, would this just be too esoteric, or would it be something a lot of people would like? And they figured a great way to get going would be to raise some initial funding for it and gauge interest by doing Kickstarter. And they figured that a way to do that was to give people a discount. So there's level one, two, and three. I guess, what, three tempting offers, you know, to yeah. use the thing. <laughs> And I guess you can range from being a junior partner or something like that. And I think we're offering to forgive all sins for any gift of $1 or more. So, <laughs> um, so we're going to play the role of partner here. And you can be a partner or a partner um, yourself. Um, the level one is that I guess you pay $45, and that gets you a copy of the game, and it will be shipped to your door in the U.S. Um, that, that will be included, all for 45 bucks. So that's really a pretty good deal um, for a game that has such really nice components and what I think is some really enjoyable gameplay. The level two is like that, plus it includes um, a 5 by 7 um, frameable relic with art by Brian Corman, really talented artist here, also part of the Board Game Designers Guild, with some fairly irreverent artwork. You can see it on the Kickstarter site, an example of 
one of those relics. And um, it will be signed as authentic by the chief partner, who I, I guess that's me. Um, <laughs> And uh, so that is for, I, I guess I need to check these numbers online here, but I think that was for $60. And then the $90, let's see, oh, wait, sorry, so it's $45 and then $65. And then for $90, you get two copies of the game. One of them is signed by me and then a choice of one of those relics. And then you get a charter, a charter membership in the Partners Guild. Um, so there's going to be a scroll listing all the charter members included in the game and signed using the hallowed relic, the Riding Quill of St. Anselm, which is a ridiculously esoteric joke for those who know medieval philosophy and the ontological proof for the existence of God. It's actually fascinating stuff. Uh, you might want to send me a link to more information about that so I include that with this podcast as well. We Will like do. To, we like to entertain and educate, so that'll be great. It's a, it's a way to prove the existence of God in about three easy steps, yes. Oh, awesome. So is it similar to the Babelfish? Um, you know, it, it's a lot like Douglas Adams' Babelfish. Um, it's about that simple, except it, instead of being a conclusive proof of the non-existence of God, it would be a conclusive proof of the existence of God. Right. Yeah. Gotcha. I'll yeah. include a link to that on the podcast as well. So speaking <coughs> of education, uh, would you like to take this awesome opportunity to leak out any little secrets you may have about any other game ideas you're working on right now? Oh, other games. Yeah, I, I, geez, when I look through my folder of game ideas, I have dozens and dozens and dozens. And uh, what freaks me out is the last time I ever looked through the list, I just took the first thing on the list and decided to say, oh, okay, I'll work on this. Well, that's now the road to Canterbury. So what's the second thing on the list? I don't know. Um, and so I've got so many things to work on. I do have two games currently with major publishers that have not been officially picked up yet but are being evaluated. Um, so one of them is in Germany, one of them is here in the U.S., and I have high hopes for those. One of them was a former um, Hippodice finalist, and it's one of my very favorite games. It was called Ziggurat, and um, that was a Hippodice finalist about, what, five years ago? And um, it did really well. People really liked it there, and they said because it has so many components and because it's two players, I don't know how publishable it will be. But since then, a lot of good two-player games have come out that have been on the higher end. Um, Mr. Jack really comes to mind there as an awesome game for two players, and my game would have similar components, so we'll have to see. So I hope that one gets picked up, and then I have a game that has just the most weird, strange set of mechanics I couldn't possibly explain, and uh, I will hope to be able to share more about that um, in a few months. I will find out probably in May if that one's being picked up, but I, I can't say much more until it's officially announced. Well, consider us officially intrigued, and <laughs> hopefully you'll keep us in the loop on that, because I want to share oh, that I with the readers. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. yeah. Dice Hate Me would be the, the first place I would notify. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> exclusive. I love exclusives. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, uh, we want to just wrap up. I like throwing you know curveballs out there, but what were your favorite games as a kid? Oh, that, 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 that's a really good question. Um, when I was a really young kid, I remember, I looked this up a few years ago to find out what the name was, because so many of us had this game we remember when we were four and couldn't remember what it was called. There was a game where you ended up traveling around this um, strangely haunted house through these danger zones marked by these footsteps, and then there would be these intermittent intervals where you'd have to drop a ball in the chimney, and it would come down the stairs and squash you if you were standing in the wrong place. <laughs> and I found out later it's called Witch Witch, W-H-I-C-H-W-H. W-I-T-C-H. <laughs> um, and I, I would love to be able to play that again. I wonder if it's any good. But that, that got me started in sort of just considering board games as utterly deranged, deranged and kind of terrifying. I mean, I kind of took it seriously, the notion that there you were represented in the game and you were being squashed by this steely ball or something, right? <laughs> um, 
I, I really loved games as a child, but it wasn't until I started playing role-playing games that I really got into them. You know, junior high sucks for most people, and it certainly did for me. And uh, my dear friend Jason Cook and my friend um, Matt Robinson and I would always play Dungeons and Dragons together and Tunnels and Trolls together. Um, and I recommend Tunnels and Trolls. It's a really cool, slick little, um, much simpler game to play, and I think in some ways superior to Dungeons and Dragons. It was delightful to play those games. And uh, I went from playing those to oh, I love the game Dark Tower. Um, did you guys play Dark Tower ever? I have not. I've seen the game, but I had not played Dark Tower. Oh, you need to. It was an electronic board game with a big, huge plastic tower in the middle of it, and you would program your, your moves into it. If you would move into the dungeon, you'd press the dungeon button and fight off brigands, go to the bazaar, buy beasts of burden, have a healer, have a scout you can buy. You could haggle with the merchants, all sorts of cool stuff. <laughs> that um, sounds awesome. I, I love that game. I love that so much that it was actually my first game design was programming a, a computer equivalent into the mainframe computer in high school in basic programming language. I made a, a working version using ASCII um, characters on the screen of that. And so that was my first game experience, was converting that over um, wow. to, a, to a computer game. Um, and so stuff like that, and then Talisman became huge after that as something I enjoyed. I didn't play anything for a long time. I got into video games, and then my wife was like, you know, it'd be nice to play some board games maybe or something that involves us together. And I'm like, eh, board games are boring. But I thought I would look, and then I discovered the Settlers of Catan, you know, like so much many of us did, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so that became the gateway game for us playing with our friends for about the last 12 years. Um, it's been a really wonderful way to have a community all around um, face-to-face gaming. Yeah, it's really, it's a great time to be a gamer, and we have such revolutionary uh, games out there. And it, it, I'm always fascinated by the games, especially for designers that influence you as a kid. Um, I'll definitely have to check out uh, Dark Tower, right? Yeah, Dark, Dark Tower, yeah. The, the, and there's actually, a, I think, a Flash implementation that tries to duplicate not just the gameplay but the feel. And it won't have the big plastic board, but it give you a taste of what it's like maybe, you know, if you Google oh. it. What, what were your guys' favorite games growing up? <laughs> you want to take this? I liked, I liked Whodunit. Do you guys remember that game? It was kind of like a clue but a little more complex and it had more deductive reasoning that yeah. needed to be done. I found I found a mangled thrift store copy of that a number of years ago, but it was missing too many pieces to play, so I have not played it. Oh, uh, yeah, and I don't have it anymore. I don't know what happened when I moved out. I don't know what happened to all our games, but I remember really liking liking that one. Yeah, I've not played Whodunit. Uh, there are two games from my youth that probably uh, I treasure the most, one of which is sitting on our shelf in here, and it's called Fireball Island. Yeah, um, I've heard of that, and I know that you're a big fan of that. Oh, I love Fireball. If you want to get crushed by balls. <laughs> yeah, say, it sounds like we have a lot in common here in terms of the anxiety of board games, like video games. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're just dreading that 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 ball comes running down the chute and crushing your little guy. But I, I like that interaction and that sort of physical uh, type of thing. And you never know when a fireball slides down if it's going to stop and not hit your guy or knock him like you know into somebody else. It's just. It's not a very complex game at all, but the production value on it with a 3D board, like it's it's just a riveting game to me growing up as a kid. Oh, I, I, I'll have to check that out. That just sounds awesome. Well, come on over. We'll play it. I got it. <laughs> okay. I would like that. <laughs> the, the other game that I think captivated me as a kid was Fortress America. And mm. I, I, it's one of those that uh, I think a lot of, uh, kids growing up have not had a chance to really play. It was in the same line, the, the Game Master series from Milton Bradley, the same line as uh, the original Shogun and Axis and Allies. They all came out about the same time. Okay, right, yeah. 
w- was it part of the series of, like Conquest of the Empire and stuff too? Then yes. Uh, I think... Oh yeah, I, and I, I love that game. Yeah. Yes. Okay, go on. Sorry, I was just curious. No, yeah, and I believe Conquest of the Empire was the game that was the predecessor before Fortress America was introduced to the line. So they kind of swapped a couple out there towards the end. But it's a it's a great game. It's one of those very American games with a ton of plastic, and you know you're attacking each other and fending off each. It's just. It's a really, really fun game, which is interesting because I still play those types of games now, but I'm more influenced by the Euro-style games um, that Monkey and I play quite a bit now, and I guess that's because it expands more upon maybe a, a maturity level of a gamer. I don't know. That's something that would be an entire podcast unto itself. So I, I, I would encourage you to follow that up in a podcast because I also want to hear about your own game designer aspirations because I understand you have some. <laughs> I do. I do. I'm currently working on a prototype. Uh, Monkey's helped out quite a bit with that. I have a friend out in San Diego, Paul Horn, who is developing character sketches for this game. I'm not quite ready to reveal everything about it, but I'm going to set up a website soon and kind of leak the word out, and hopefully I'll have it up on Dice Hate Me within the next couple of months. Excellent. (laughs) (laughs) We'll send you a prototype so you can tell what you think. Awesome. Well, Alf, we really appreciate you for joining us on the podcast. And remember to everyone out there listening that Alf and Griffin Games need your help. So again, go to kck.st backslash helpalf and join the Partners Guild. Like he said, who knows, maybe a cent or two will even get pardoned if you do that. And again, we're going to put a link to the Kickstarter campaign on DiceHateMe.com along with this podcast. Just think, 100 bucks will pardon you 100 cents. <laughs> Straight from the monkey's mouth. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Thank you, monkey. Thank you. All right, we'll talk to you again soon. All right, take care, you guys. Monkey 238 online. Interview process complete. Loading human ramble segment. The state of games. Now. Thank you, Monkey238. Um, what was that anyway? <laughs> what do you mean? You know, that voice. Oh, uh, it's just something I've been working on. You know, I'm, I'm trying to create an artificial intelligence based on you that I can play games against. You know, I'm, I'm going to program her to let me win sometimes. Uh, yeah, that sounds like a stellar idea. <laughs> <laughs> so what have we been playing lately that we just absolutely need to tell the world about? Through the ages. <laughs> That's a good idea, Monkey, especially since you mentioned that earlier. Yes. Uh, so anyway, Through the Ages, A Story of Civilization. Um, this is by one of my favorite designers, Vlada Chivato, and it's produced by Eagle Games. Uh, we don't actually own Through the Ages. We borrowed this one from our very own Sally Thanks a lot. We think since it didn't seem to have enough combat and bloodthirstiness for her husband, but we're hoping that we can learn it and share it with them, and he'll see that there is a lot of bloodthirstiness and cutthroat uh, abilities in the later advanced game. But it's definitely a game that I've wanted to own and play for years. Uh, Monkey cut her teeth on more hardcore gaming when we bought and played Roll Through the Ages last year, so we were both eager to get into its bigger and more complex brother. So, Monkey, why don't you tell us a little about Through the Ages? Let's see. The bottom line is that it's a game about developing civilizations, and there are three ways to play it. There's the basic simple game, there's the advanced game, and the full game. We have yet to tackle the full game, but we have played two or three runs of the simple and advanced. Basically, you're trying to coordinate the happiness of your population with the corrupt government, who can screw you over, 
as well as develop resources by building farms and mines and labs and temples to keep your population happy and satisfied, as well as building your military, which is, although not the ultimate goal of the game, as the ultimate goal is to get the most culture points in your civilization, it's really important to build up your infantry and cavalry to be able to build up strength in order to protect yourself from other civilizations that are warring against you. And military has been probably the crux of the games that we've played, which has been interesting because when we played the simple game, Monkey built up a lot of military. I mean, she was a huge military civilization, and I didn't focus on it at all, trying to get more culture points. And ultimately, she crushed me because you get a lot of culture points at the end because of the amount of strength that your civilization has. When you play the more advanced game, the military is a little bit more balanced, but I went the purely military route the last advanced game that we played, and she did more of a, a stay behind a little bit just to protect herself enough, and she still crushed me with culture points. So we're still trying to work out the little uh, nuances of how best to, to utilize your military and, and build up your civilization at the same time. Actually, I'm, I figured that out already. Apparently, you just still need to work on that. Oh, yeah. The, the human <laughs> spreadsheet here has already figured out the game. Sorry. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, we still have a lot to learn, and we look forward to playing the full version of the game, which is apparently from other friends that have played it. They say that's really the only true full experience is right. to play that yeah, the, most complete game. Yeah, the drawback, I mean, there, there are bonuses and drawbacks. The bonuses of uh, breaking the game into three different types is that playing the simple game allows you to learn the base mechanics really easily, and it's a very quick game. But it's not a full gaming experience. To play the advanced game, you get to play through what is the ancient stage of the civilization. Then there's the, there's age one, and then you go into age two. In the full game, it has a complete age three. Well, at least going through age two allows you to get a more fully rounded civilization. Um, when you go from stage to stage, some of the technologies from previous ages will become uh, irrelevant and will be taken out of the game. So playing to age two at least gives you a time to really play it out enough that you can see how a full strategy can play out. But from what we've heard about the full game, and we're really looking forward to testing out, is how that transition from age two to age three actually helps you even further along to develop your culture points and technology and, and things like that. Word. <laughs> One thing that I wanted to mention is one thing we've noticed at the very beginning of the game, the ancient civilizations, is picking your leader, your first leader, has been really important to the game. Mm -hmm. And there are several different leader types that you can go with, and depending on the, the whether you're playing the simple game or the advanced game, uh, will make a difference as to which way you go. A couple of leaders, like uh, there are a couple that are really strong that give you huge military bonuses in the beginning, and then there are a couple that are more uh, geared toward giving you more actions per turn and are a little more nuanced for the, the long haul of, of the entire game. Yeah, and that's a key part of the strategy is knowing when to take a certain leader and when to be willing to give he or she up in exchange for another leader who will then help you through the next age or the next stage of your development. If you hold on to one throughout the whole game, it doesn't usually pan out. Yeah, it doesn't really behoove you to get stuck with one particular... And if you see that you're falling behind in culture points or not being able to stand up militarily to another civilization, 
it usually is a good idea to to try to uh, stop mid-flow and adjust what you're doing. And a lot of times that can come with the, with picking the right leader. This entire thing is card-based. There's no map involved, uh, which I always think is, is fascinating with a civilization game. And because of that, there's a lot of depth. The, the randomness of the cards that come up, there's a lot of replay value in it. And I think we just highly recommend it, and we're looking forward to the full game. And we'll report back into you once we've played the full game and Monkey's crushed me through three and a, three or four hours of... Full gameplay. <laughs> and now it's time for the riddle, the riddle of. No, 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 cut. We're not, we're not doing that this week. Yeah, because listener response to the riddle of the Sphinx has dropped almost nothing. We've decided to drop the segment, but we'd love to hear from all of you. Send us ideas for new segments or just things you'd like for us to talk about on the podcast. One thought that we have is geared to some of our international listeners, inspired by a recent present from Felipe in Ecuador. He sent us a game, Cuarenta, indigenous to his country, and we look forward to sharing our playing experiences with all of you out there. You know, spreading the gaming love worldwide. And, wink wink, who knows, we may have some giveaway contests coming up soon, so keep listening. Hey, did you know you can find us on Twitter? Seriously. And we even talk to people and stuff. It's true. You can follow me at Dice Hate Me. And find me at Monkey238. And yeah, I'll probably talk to you. And stuff. And stuff. And don't forget to check out DiceHateMe.com. Because if you don't, the terrorists have won. Until next time, this is Dice Hate Me. And Monkey238. Saying thanks for listening. And may may all all your roles roles be sixes. sixes. Transmission. Initiating Skynet connection.